and uh, thanks, Lauren. You can you can go and and to really talk about Almighty God and talk about this this amazing scripture that you can go carry on, Lauren. That we that we're working through in Isaiah 9, 6, and we've been doing this in this series. For us, a child is born, to us a son is given, and the government shall be on his shoulder, and his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. I've been uh, I'm on, a, on something of a sabbatical um, last year, um, and so everything I do, my children put in inverted commas. So I bought a business, and um, so whenever I go to the business, oh, Dad, are you busy with the business? It's okay. <laughs> And so when I do anything else, like go, you know, doing sort of sabbatical stuff, like do studies, they're like, oh, Dad, you're doing your sabbatical now. So this is, so, so, so this is what I have to deal with. Um, but one of the things I've done in my sabbatical was to do um, a study of apologetics. And the reason I did this, and this was towards the end of last year, was I have lived, um, I suppose like most of us, much of my life kind of in the secular world. I mean, I went to a very liberal university, lots of very liberal secular friends, um, worked in financial services uh, for many years, 25 years, um, and so have found myself immersed um, in, very much in the secular world most of the time. Um, and, you know, um, I, I have been a, a believer, a Christ follower from the age of about 12, um, and, and reasonably faithful, I think, most of the time to that. But the, the walk of, of kind of walking amongst secular people all the time um, has made me really reflect and look at myself, and, and maybe it's kind of semi-midlife crisis, but kind of look and say, how, you know, how, do I bring, how do I bring this message? How do I bring a reason for my faith to my friends? Because it's become, um, I, I get the impression sometimes that, uh, you know, belonging to a church is like a bit like in Cape Town, belonging to the Table Mountain National Park. It's like, it's something you do on a Sunday. Um, you have friends who also do it. Um, in fact, it's slightly better because it's also, you also go on Wednesdays sometimes in a thing called a life group. But basically, it's sort of like a hulpgruppie. You know, do you guys know what a hulpgruppie is? It's just a kind of a comfort. And so I've kind of been challenged in the last few months and, and the last year on this thing which I was inspired by a guy called Dallas Willard, and I think you can, to, who, who wrote a book called The Divine Conspiracy. He really is one of my favorite authors. And he, in his introduction to this book, The Divine Conspiracy, he talks about this. He says, my hope is to gain a fresh hearing for Jesus, especially among those who believe they already understand him. In his case, quite frankly, presumed familiarity has led to unfamiliarity. Unfamiliarity has led to contempt, and contempt has led to profound ignorance. And so I, I, I want to bring to you today like this perspective on the Christ and the Messiah and, and who he is. And perhaps we could pause for a second and give, him, give it like a, a fresh hearing and a fresh look as to who this, who this man was, who we became, came to understand was, was God's son given to us. Thanks, thanks, Lauren. So, so first, I want to just talk about the context. I, I was I was in Jerusalem um, twenty years ago, and we were, we were going through. Uh, where there's a place where they, you, you know, the, the Last Supper took place, or they think the Last Supper took place, and so it's kind of, you know, piles of, of Christians making their way through. And there was an old Jewish gentleman who had set up a little room with a projector on the side. And he would stand, and as you'd come past, he'd say, he'd sort of flag you down and say, do you want to come in here and I'll explain to you why the Jews are right? That was his, that was his line. So, of course, I thought, this is pretty interesting. Of course, I'm, of course I want to hear this, right? So we go in and we, and we sit down, and he's got, trans- this was the days of transparencies. He puts these transparencies up on, on the screen, and he, he makes his argument. But his main argument, actually, was the, was, was the verse from Isaiah. It was this verse. It was Isaiah 9, verse 6. 
Because he says, this guy that you guys talk about, you don't understand. You Christians think that we were waiting for like a lowly shepherd or a nice guy. That's not who we were waiting for. We were waiting for the guy whose government's going to, the government is going to be on his shoulders. This is the guy we were waiting for. You guys got the wrong guy. We're still waiting for him. That was his argument. So I argued with him for a while, and then eventually I moved up. I, I, went, I went be sidetracked into how I argued with him, but I, thought I, I hoped I'd left him with one or two little nuggets to kind of think about. But what we've got to realize is the Messiah who was born in the year zero, more or less, was, was a central figure in Jewish political and religious life. I mean, this was a guy they were expecting um, the, 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 the savior of the, of the Jewish nation. That's who, that's who they were expecting. And they had these scriptures from Micah and the two Isaiahs and, 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 and a bunch of others. When he was born, uh, some wise men came to Herod, uh, who was the ruler um, at that time and, and you know, was kind of under the Romans, but really was in charge of that region. And they came to him and they said, listen, and he heard about it actually, he came to him, they said, listen, there is this, we are wise men, they were not from, they weren't, they weren't Jewish, they were from, I think, the kind of Iraq region. You've got to understand, the, the most amazing thing in the, in the history of the world is about to happen. We've seen it in the stars, there were astrologers and what have you, we won't get into that, but we've seen this, and this is the most amazing thing that's about to happen. And you must be so excited, I think, I can imagine the conversation, you know, you must be so excited. And Herod was like, well, excitement is not the word that I would use for that. Why? Because Herod was, Herod was king. He was planning for his son to be king and for his grandson to be king. And so the, the, he called the Jewish leaders in and said, guys, there's this, just tell me about this, this, um, this Messiah that's coming, this king that is coming. And they said, well, you know, according to my, in Micah, it talks about Bethlehem. So he's going to, uh, you know, that, that's where, that's where the, 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 the Messiah is going to be born. So Herod orders a genocide, okay, a genocide of all the boys under the age of two, just to kind of make sure that he catches the time frame correctly. This is the, this is the lengths that Herod went to to, 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 to basically reduce the risk that there was going to be this king and this ruler that, that, would, that would rise up in the Jewish nation. Now, you don't order a genocide if you're expecting a, sort of a nice guy who's going to just be a teacher, say some nice things, encourage people to be nice to one another, or maybe a sort of a lowly shepherd. This is not the picture that, that, that they had in their mind. Even the... Even the um, the, the, the disciples, when they joined Jesus, they thought they were joining an insurrection, right, initially. When he called them in, they said, listen, you, you're coming, I found the Messiah, you must join us. They joined, but they were, they were expecting that this was going to be the thing that was going to overturn, um, overturn the government. And, and the, the Jewish people, I mean, things have not gone well for the Jewish people for most of their history, but this was certainly a time when they needed the Savior, right? So, so this was the context into which uh, this Messiah uh, was, was, was being born and the expectation. And right up to the very time that he was in the Garden of Gethsemane and the soldiers arrived and they said, look, we're here to, we're here to kind of find Jesus. Where is Jesus? Who is Jesus? Peter, who is, um, you know, the great rock upon which the church is built, he said, okay, well, listen, we can take these oaks. I mean, that was his response, right? I, I grew up in the northern suburbs of Cape Town near, you know, very close to kind of where the Etzebets grew up. You know, Eben Etzebet and his cousins. Okay. So if the Etzebets kind of, you know, they, you know who, everyone knows Eben Etzebet, but, they, but he's got like a range of cousins, and he's, they're basically all enormous people who, who, with a bad attitude. Um, he's kind of, Eben is kind of the sort of nice guy. He was the, the gentle one in, in, in the family. So when the, when the Etzebets get together, which is either there or in, in, in Longabon, 
then actually they've got a pretty much an attitude of, well, listen, whoever's around, there can be 200 people outside. We'll take these oaks. Okay. And this was Peter. Peter was like, look, we'll take these guys. This is the moment. This is the moment that we're going to, that we're going to, that we're going to stage this insurrection. Right. And what does Jesus say to him? He was kind of expecting, I think, Jesus to say, let's go. Let's go. This is the moment. What did you say? Jesus says, put your sword back in its place. And he heals. We, had, we later hear it was in, in John, we heard it was Peter. I mean, that it was Peter who did it. He, he hears, heals Malchus's ear, and he says, put your sword back in its place. And something along the lines of, am I here to lead a rebellion? Why do you come to me with clubs and swords? So this causes chaos, of course, right? So the disciples scatter. They run off. I mean, this is not the proudest moment of Peter and the others. They all run off. Peter denies Jesus. And I, I kind of think that it was this contrast of being ready. So the guy goes from being ready to draw his sword, and he does draw his sword, to running away. And I think it was this transition, this, this, um, this extraordinary transition from understanding the Messiah to be this mighty God to then seeing, but, but how do we make sense of what comes next? Right. And what comes next, of course, is, and Laura, you can, you can go, is is the greatest act of love in the history of the world, is what comes next. So um, I, I was, as, as, part of, as part of this apologetics course, uh, I actually had to, as a practical, uh, go and talk to one of my friends, who's a, he's a um, kind of ardent atheist. Uh, he's, he's actually one, he's my, literally my best friend. We are um, uh, uh, best men at each other's weddings doesn't reflect very well on me that my best man at my wedding is still an atheist. I guess I should, maybe that's why I'm doing the apologetics course. But we had this fascinating conversation where we're talking, and he's, you know, he's, he's a pretty educated guy. He's a Rhodes Scholar, did, he's, he did a degree in politics, philosophy, economics at Oxford. He's, he's done quite a lot of thinking on these kinds of topics. And my observation with him and with others, when you, sp you, you spend the first, the first phase of the conversation with, with someone like that, starts on science, right? It starts on, well, you know, science has kind of disproved God and has disproved the need for a creator. And so you go through that kind of circle, and it's, you know, you spend the first part of the conversation on that. But then the conversation transitions, because actually, you get, it's, it's not hard to, de to debunk the plausibility of, of, of that kind of argument, right? It, it, kind of, um, it kind of goes nowhere. What you get to, if you probe a bit further and you double-click, 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 you go through to this question, right? And the question is not, does God exist? I mean, that's, that's kind of, that's not the question, okay? The question is, does he love us? That's the question. Because actually, if you, if you probe it and you say, well, if God created the universe and he is mighty and he did all of these things, but he doesn't love us, then what does it matter? And that's the honest truth, right? The honest truth is actually, when you talk to people who don't know Jesus and who are, who are searching, that's actually the question that they get to, is could we be outrageous enough to believe that there is a God of the universe, the creator of all mankind, creator of the world, creator of everything that we see, who at the same time loves us like his own children? That's the, that's the nugget. That's the binary thing, right? Because actually, you've got to choose one or the other. If you don't believe that, if you believe that actually he doesn't love us, then it's kind of irrelevant. And actually, I've heard that said by, and in fact, some of the great atheists of the world, Dawkins, actually great atheists of the world, is kind of a 
misnomer. Some of the most famous um, uh, you know, kind of apologists of this view, Dawkins, Hitchens, some of the others, they kind of said, they said to, they said to Dawkins once, you know, what are you going to do if you, if, you reach, um, if you reach, if you die, which he has now, and, um, and, you, and you meet God, and, and he says to you, why didn't you believe me? He, he says, well, I'll just tell him you should have shown me more evidence. Okay. That was his quote, right? So, so, so there's this interesting question around, it's, everybody knows that it's possible that there's a creator out there, but it's, it's much easier to believe that than it is to actually believe the outrageous, scandalous truth that there is a God of the universe who would love us enough to send his son for us. And this was the thing, so if you carry on now, um, this, this was the thing which was, was the process that the disciples had to go through and the, followers early, the early followers of the way, as they called it, had to go through to get their heads around what it is that we are dealing with here. Is the Messiah who is mighty and yet came and died for us and not only, not only died for us, conquered, conquered sin and death and, and rose again. That's the picture. The, the, um, one, of the, one of the most famous seminal works on this question, and this is the, what, the, coming back to the point around around people who are not believers and grappling with this question of love. Um, one of the great seminal works is a guy called Viktor Frankl, who you may have heard of. He wrote a book called um, Man's Search for Meaning. Now, Viktor Frankl was an Austrian psychologist, uh, famous, actually, at the time. Um, he'd written books, so, you know, people will talk about Freud, Jung, and then they'll talk about Frankl. And so Frankl um, was a famous psychologist who then got put into Auschwitz. He got taken, with his, lost everything, lost his family, and spent three years in Auschwitz and Dachau. And shortly coming out of that, um, then, you know, I think within a, within a matter of three months, wrote a book called Man's Search for Meaning, which is, which is written, he wrote in about three weeks. And what he was trying to download while it was fresh in his mind was this picture of the human condition, which is essentially what is it to be human? Because he, what he witnessed was people being stripped of all their humanity in these concentration camps and, and, and how they coped with it and how they lived through that suffering. And how different people chose to, to cope with that. And he said that was, for him, as someone who had studied psychology um, through, you know, and, and had become a, a global expert, th- this was a thing that no one else had witnessed, is to actually witness how people respond and what is it about the human condition that we can conclude. And one of his most famous passages in this book was, a thought transfixed me, and this was towards the end of, to, towards the end of his time. For the first time in my life, I saw the truth as it is set into song by so many poets, proclaimed as the final wisdom by, some, by so many thinkers. The truth, that love is the ultimate and highest goal to which man can aspire. Then I grasp the meaning of the greatest secret that human poetry and human thought and belief have to impart. The salvation of man is in love and through love. Everything else, everything else becomes irrelevant. This is the binary choice, right? Can we, can we, can we believe that there is a creator who, who knows us, who created us, who knows our condition, and, and who loves us? Thanks, Laura. And so, so, so in, in these kind of early days, there was a, a reassessment of the scripture, right? This, this Isaiah scripture. I'm sure they went and they, they went, looked back and they said, well, we, we, we're this mighty Messiah. We, we know he was the Messiah. He has, he's spoken. He, he healed. He performed miracles. He, he was the guy that, we were, that we're absolutely sure was coming. So he was all of those things that we were waiting for. Uh, but if you go back and you can say, what was the thing? You, you've got a, a, son is, a son is born. A child is given. He will be called mighty God. How can those be in the same sentence? How can it be in the same sentence for a, for, for, for a Jewish person looking at a child is born, a son is given, he is mighty God? 
The only way that that comes together is the Christ is, is God's son. He's God's son. He is man and God. And so that verse from John, it's almost as though in, in John 3.16, John, the disciple that Jesus loved, he kind of nailed it. He picked it out and he said, this is how we make sense of all of this. For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son. And so this picture that we have of a Messiah we must, and, and the Christ, we must never lose that, that, that context and, and what that means for us today. And what it means is this, what is this greatest act of love that was, that was put into history 2,000 years ago? What, what, what does it mean? Carry on, Lauren. Thank you. It's, he, he, he pursues us. So he is mighty and he, and he loves us. He has performed the greatest act of love in history. But he uses his power to pursue the hearts of his children. Throughout history, um, and this is something which we've, which we've now come to understand, right? He wasn't here to, just like he wasn't here to overturn the, 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 the Roman army, um, God also wasn't, wasn't acting in, in, in different ways to kind of overturn the world and fix everything. He doesn't use his mighty power to fix everything. What does he do? He uses his mighty power to redeem his children by pursuing our hearts. And how does he pursue our hearts, right? You, you go throughout history. You look at um, from the time of, 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 of Moses, finding Moses um, in the desert. Why did he pursue Moses? Why did he pursue Moses? I mean, Moses was a guy. He'd been written off. He was in the desert. Huh? He saw Moses' heart. Huh? He saw Moses' heart, and he appeared to him in mighty power in the burning bush. And he said to him, I will free your, the, the, the people of Israel from the Egyptians, the most powerful nation in the world. David, his son, uh, uh, um, his, his, the, da- the, the man who said, David said, the man after God's own heart, was what Samuel said. Right? David was a lowly shepherd boy. He was a guy that everyone had written off. His, his, uh, his, um, his brothers had, had not even thought it sensible to even invite him to, to, uh, to the banquet where the king of Israel was going to be anointed. Right? And Samuel was there. But he saw that. He saw David's heart. So he pursues, he pursues our hearts, and in that miraculous way of pursuing our hearts, he then uh, works through our hearts for the, for the changing of the world. And this is, this is this great, amazing story of our Savior who died for us to make all of this possible. I, I was, um, I, you know, I, I've, I've got four children, so um, I, I think it's fair to say that um, I've gone to a lot of birthday parties. Um, and, and so... <laughs> And, um, and you know when you, go and pick, when you go pick up your kids from birthday parties, right, you know the feeling, like you arrive, first sort of minute or two, you're trying to be friendly to the parents, they know that all you want is to get your kid out of there, and all they want is for you to get your kid out of there. And, and so there's this sort of dance, and then there's, you know, you have initially, and maybe someone offers you a drink, and you know, you'll have a little sip of something, but actually you don't want to be there, actually what you want to do is you want to get your kid out of there. So what do you do? So what you do is you, is you call, right? You call and, and, you know, they're in the pool and you go and say, listen. <laughs> Everyone knows what I'm talking about. And, you, you know, you can't be too impolite, so you just sort of do that once. And after a few minutes later on, the parents are eventually looking at you like, look, you need to do something. And you go back. My kids are experts at this. Actually, I've got one, one in particular where I remain nameless. Although you know who you are, Lucy. Um, she, she's, she, yeah, I don't think she's here. She, 
she's gone. She, she's, she's always the one who, and she, because she loves the pool. She's pretty social, she loves the pool. And so I can call her, but man, that pool, that pool's amazing, and the kids are amazing, and the friends are there, and the sweets, and it's just extracting her. And so I, I, when, I, when I think of God pursuing us, I, 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 he's calling us, right? He's pursuing us. When I talk to some of my friends, they're like, well, God is, you know, this all-powerful God that you, that you serve, why is he not intervening and fixing everything? Why doesn't he just make, and, 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 and the answer is, here comes Lisey. Yeah. Um, <laughs> sorry, Goose. The, now she's really wondering what I said about it. Yeah, I'm just joking. Where was I? So, yeah, she came, exactly. She did eventually. Um, so, so, so they asked this question around how, how is it that this God that you serve is meant to, is meant to change everything, right? He's, he's meant to fix things. Why are there sickness? Why is there disease? Why is there suffering? These are all deep questions that we can kind of delve into. But the truth is that the, the, the amazing mystery of our God and our Savior is that He calls us. He calls us. He pursues us. He pursues our hearts. And in pursuing our hearts, that is how He redeems us, and through us, that is how He redeems mankind. And this is this great redemption story that we are in the middle of and, our, and our, the time is coming where we will come to the end of it and all will be restored. And so I, I, I kind of ask you the question, as, as we should all ask ourselves, is are, are we hearing him? Is he, is he calling you? Is he calling you today? Has he been calling you? Are you, are you, are you in the swimming pool, swimming, throwing the ball? Are, are, you, are you occupied? What, what's occupying you? Is he, is he calling you? Because when he calls you and you respond, then, then, then this life opens up within you uh, that, thanks Lauren, that is, um, that is this extraordinary life. And, and it is a life where the, the, the life opens up within us and the outworking of his power begins to be not just in what we see around us, but in fact through us. This life of being filled with the Holy Spirit and being transformed and a new life beginning within us. That is the life that opens up and that, and that emerges when we, when we say yes to his calling to us. And so, you know, we, we reflect on, you know, Philippians 4.13, where Paul says, I can do all things through him who strengthens me. And again, 2 Corinthians 12.9, but he said to me, my grace is sufficient for you, for my power is made perfect in weakness. And folks, there's something here around how it took, it took the Christ, it took the Messiah to make himself the weakest of all by being crucified for, that, for, for God's power to truly work in that, in, that, in that redemptive act for mankind. And it's almost like there's a parallel in our own lives when we were able to, to answer the call and come to him in our weakness. And as we come to him in our weakness, we see his power at work. His power is at work everywhere. Um, it's at work in each of our hearts. It's at work in this community. And, it's, and, and through, through the hearts in this room, through the, through the, through the working in our hearts, he, he will use us to touch the lives of people around us in our community. And there is a light that then shines that starts in one place and, and spreads. And this is the thing, by the way, that those followers of the, the early followers of the way saw. This is the thing. They, they saw Jesus rise from the dead, and they had to take the step 
of faith. And once they took that step of faith, it spread like, it spread like wildfire. There is no movement in history that has ever done what that movement did and with the greatest opposition that could ever be mounted against it. They had the, the, great, the greatest empire in the history of the world was opposed to this, to this movement. Um, and yet, that, that truth spread and reaches people today. And it's the very same Christ, the very same Messiah who, who died for them then, who has died for you, and who is calling you today. Let's stand as we respond to that. It's hard. 